For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an update on the status of endangered species. Learn about Tucson's newest theatrical company. An essay from Adiba Nelson. Sculptor Barbara Gregudis reflects on her career and a profile of a man named Tiger who's been tending bar at Hotel Congress since 1959. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, more endangered species have been classified as recovered during the eight years of the Obama administration than at any time since the Endangered Species Act became law in 1973. Tony Paniagua met with the center's executive director, Kieran Suckling, to find out more. For the average person, I'm sure they've heard of the Endangered Species Act, but how would you describe it for the non-scientists? Sure. When it's been really proven that a species is at very no low numbers and is about to completely go extinct, uh, it qualifies to be put onto the endangered species list. And once that happens, uh, it's illegal to kill the species. Uh, but even more importantly, it requires the federal government to spend money doing habitat restoration and protection to increase those numbers to a level where we can say it's safe now and actually take it off the list. And we've got about 1,500 species on the endangered species list, and they're in every single state in the country. Um, where we live here in southern Arizona is one of the endangered species hotspots in the country, one of about 10. And so we've got an unusually high number here, uh, and most of them are doing quite well. And interestingly, um, they're doing quite well here in part because Pima County is also taking responsibility. It's not just federal. So the county has taken responsibility for endangered species here and is doing quite a good job of ensuring there's enough habitat for them. Three species in the southwest um, were recovered. The lesser long-nosed bat here in Arizona and southern New Mexico was removed from the Endangered Species Act because it had increased from about 200 bats in 1977 to about 200,000 today. So it was a great success and was removed from the list. Another southwest species is Kunstler's hedgehog cactus from southeast New Mexico. It was uh, downlisted from endangered status to threatened because its numbers had also greatly increased. And then finally, the gypsum wild buckwheat, which is a grass, um, its numbers also greatly increased over the last 30 years and was removed from the list. So, you know, those are just three examples of many, many more that have recovered. Um, and in fact, the Obama administration has taken 32 species off of the endangered species list due to recovery more than any in history. Um, and he was a good spokesperson as well for protecting endangered species and understanding how they're part of our American way of life. Many of these plants or animals were put on the Endangered Species Act in the 70s and 80s, and now we're finding out what the results were? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can think of it this way. It took several hundred years to imperil most of these species. It took a long time. 1973, we created the Endangered Species Act. It takes 30, 40, 50 years to reverse 
that decline and recover them. And that's where we're at today. And that's why with each presidency, you're seeing more and more come off that list. And when we protect the land for the species, we're also protecting it for humans. And so just looking at the species we've talked about today, um, the Kunstler hedgehog cactus, the wild gypsum buckwheat, when we protect those habitats, those become areas where people can go out and recreate and have a really nice place to enjoy themselves. Um, with the uh, lesser long-nosed bat, um, it actually is a pollinator of our saguaro cactuses here. It specializes in that. If all the lesser long-nosed bats disappeared, our saguaro cactuses would start to die off, and that's an iconic species of our entire region. And I think that uh, people would be shocked and dismayed to see that happen. So now we have a new administration here in the United States. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what you foresee happening in the future with uh, incoming President Donald Trump. Well, you know, Trump himself has not opined on the protection of endangered species, although he's uh, opined on a lot of other environmental issues. So Trump himself may be relatively neutral on this topic. We're going to be certainly on the defensive uh, and fighting against efforts in Congress to completely get rid of the Endangered Species Act. But we also are going to be uh, continue to promote uh, proactive conservation land measures and I think probably do more work with the states and the counties uh, in a time when the feds are likely to pull back from endangered species protection. Thank you, Ron Suckling, the executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tucson is now home to a new theatrical company, one that's driven by an important mission. Digna Theater will produce plays about human rights in a global context, promoting awareness and social advocacy through the arts. Their debut season begins February 23rd with a one-woman show that tells the story of their namesake, crusading human rights lawyer Digna Ochoa. In 2001, Ochoa was found dead in her Mexico City office under mysterious circumstances. I visited a rehearsal of the play to meet with Digna Theater co-founders Ana Cornide and Alba Jaramillo. Digna Ochoa, she was a human rights attorney in Mexico. She was indigenous herself, um, grew up very poor. She worked so hard she ended up in law school and, and took uh, on her legal career to to defend people who traditionally did not have access to legal justice. And all her cases were very high profile um, cases against the government that most attorneys did not dare to take. What would you say are the emotions that guide you the most in this project when you think about um, Digna Ochoa and her sacrifice? I think for me is the fact that she was a woman defending poor people from the south, and she started defending women, Zapatista women that were being raped, being raped herself also. But I think it's the fact that the narrative that the government created utilizes all of the stereotype that that body has to suffer, right? So she was named psychotic, problematic, not to be believed, just because she decided to fight for the rights of others. So again, everything, all of her choices were used for the government against herself. How does this play depict these crimes? How do you go about presenting the story? It's a one-woman show. It's one-woman voice. Um, and I think how it's depicted is connecting her murder 
to other actions of criminality by the Mexican government in compliance with the US. Okay. So she in fact makes the connection of all of the drug trafficking and the criminalization of impoverished people and dissent and treats all of that line of violence. Where does the Digna Ochoa, who is in this play, where does she come from? Is, is, is this after her death? Digna Ochoa uh, was born in Misantla, um, Veracruz. After her murder in 2001, this play, um, she comes back after the dead to address an American audience. She starts the play with the intention of providing Americans with kind of a toolkit on how to resist and how to make your own story. So she, she comes and gives lectures. She says, she says, this is what you need to learn about resistance. But as she's giving this very much academic lecture in the beginning, um, something happens um, within her that she begins to actually question her own choices and, and whether she was reckless, what, what led to her murder, and did she even play a role in it? All the brutality, that, all the trauma that she had experienced. Where do you think that the Dignit Theatre Company might be in a year? It is a company. Um, we definitely would like to, to do some international work and, and take this beyond our borders so that human rights is, is, a, is a universal issue. So I believe we're going to explore how we can do some, uh, some international work with our campaigns and with our productions. And we have it asked to produce a play by a former University of Arizona student that works with women in brothel in India. So she has contact us. And, and potentially with um, a poet from Mexico who's, who's very well known in Mexico and, and was also an organizer for the Zapatistas. And so we, we're probably, we're, we're talking to, to him about a show. Digna Theater presents the world premiere of Digna by Patricia Davis, February 23rd at the YWCA on Bonita Avenue in Tucson. You can find out more at dignatheater.org. Next, we'll hear the first in a new series of essays by Adiba Nelson, a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. Food and Survival in the Time of SNAP, How One Family Survived on 88 Cents a Day. I'm Adiba Nelson. Recently, Tucson was named a UNESCO World City of Gastronomy. According to Devin Sanner, executive chef of Janos Wilder's Carriage House, Part of being named a city of gastronomy means that you are making the most of the foods that grow naturally in your region with very little waste and utilizing local food sources that aid in distribution, such as the community food bank and local farmers markets. In an interview with the New York Times, Edible Baja's Megan Kimball clearly understands how important this is to our city. When asked about this designation, she stated, It gives us a reason to have deeper discussions about food and what it means to everyone who lives here. The question begs, though, what does food mean and who is everyone? For families like the McPhersons, food is the line in the sand between buying their children's socks or underwear at the beginning of the school year, because once groceries are purchased, they cannot afford both. 
the McPhersons utilized SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, for six months as a means of survival. Theirs is only one experience out of the thousands of similar experiences in Tucson. Anne McPherson is a married mom of three with a college degree. In 2015, she found herself in the daunting and often humiliating position of having to apply for food stamps so she could feed her family. She says, my husband was working part-time and at the time I was pregnant and unemployed. We talked at length about the process of applying for food assistance programs, the mental and emotional toll it takes on the family, and the amounts received. According to foodstampoffice.us, the maximum net income allowed for a family of five in Arizona is $2,298. At this amount, the maximum food stamp allotment for a family of five is $750 per month. Mrs. McPherson's husband was bringing home approximately $1,100 a month after taxes. However, they were only receiving $132 a month to feed their family of five. Let's do the math on that. $132 divided by five people is $26.40 per person for the month. When you break that down to the daily allocation per person, that comes out to 88 cents per person per day. When asked how that worked for her family, the answer was simple. She told me it didn't. She went on to explain the unreal balancing act they had to do every month to eat, often having to overdraw their bank account at the end of the month in order to make it to their next food stamp disbursement. Basically, she said, we would go food shopping on paydays and save the SNAP card for the in-between weeks. Then we would either buy half of what we needed or spend it all, knowing that at the last week of the month we would have to go negative in our checking account to get food for the family. Struggling to understand how this all works out at the end of the month, when she had no money and no food, I asked her what her shopping cart might look like. She said, I would buy more than what I needed at the moment so that it would last longer. For example, I may not need five pounds of ground beef, but I'm going to buy five pounds of ground beef because I have no other choice come the end of that week when I'm running out of food. So I buy the 10 pound bag of potatoes and the 10 for $10 cans of corn and the ground beef, and I make shepherd's pie. It seems our local Department of Economic Security has missed the mark in understanding how crucial food is to families that live here. Mrs. McPherson was not aware that our local farmer's markets offer something called double your SNAP dollars. She was not aware that farmer's markets even accepted SNAP. Nor did she realize that Costco, Trader Joe's, and the 4th Avenue Food Conspiracy Co-op also accept SNAP. This information was never made available to her by the agency put in place to help her. If it seems like this is problematic, that's because it is. If our local food curators understand how crucial the availability of food is to the families that live in a food desert, why is it that the families themselves are not being informed about programs that can help? Have we moved from a lend-a-hand to my fellow man philosophy to a figure-it-out-and-good-luck-to-ya philosophy? Only time will tell, but hopefully time won't run out for the families that need that hand the most. 
That essay was first published in the Tucson Weekly. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. Public art sculptor Barbara Gragudis has influenced the Tucson skyline with some intriguing works, like the aluminum columns along the Kino 22nd Street Interchange and the interactive bronze chair sculptures outside the U of A College of Fine Arts. There's a new book chronicling her decades of work, Public Art, Public Space, The Sculptural Environments of Barbara Gragudis, and Bryn Baylor has the interview. Light and transparency are key themes in your work. Does the light in Tucson, has that influenced, been an influence at all? It's definitely an influence. I've been working in Tucson for 50 years as an artist, and uh, I think we're blessed. The lack of humidity allows the sunlight to create a really uh, special kind of light, and you notice it, of course, more when you come from the East Coast. But historically, many artists have come here to paint or moved here to write because of the light. It's a big influence on my work, and I try to use light uh, in a three-dimensional way so that it doesn't just reflect off of the sculpture, but it actually permeates it and uh, creates all kinds of secondary effects. Um, I call it dynamic without actually moving because the light can make a piece move when there's actually no motion. And it's a beautiful thing. Has the desert also been an inspiration for your work? Tucson is a very sculptural landscape. The cacti, the mountains, everything has a very distinctive shape and very sculptural shape. There's no question that all artists are influenced by where they come from. Is there a greater demand for public art now, or is is it really a shrinking art form? I think public art is growing by leaps and bounds, actually. Uh, there are very, very small communities that have fantastic public art programs. Um, public art is art in the public realm, and a person going to work every morning a person who might not necessarily go to a gallery or does not like to go to museums will walk by this work of art, which becomes part of the built environment and becomes part of their reference in the built environment. So we have buildings, we have landscape, but sculpture, additional layers of design and beauty in the built environment add to communities. What type of discussions would you like your new book to generate among readers? I'd like people to think about their built environment and what could be added or subtracted. I'm interested in beauty. I think that that's not a common word used in the arts, or we used to frown on it in the 60s, but I am interested in creating a more aesthetic environment uh, for the citizenry of the various communities that I go into, and I hope I succeed. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about SculptureTucson.org. What is that and what is it meant to to do? SculptureTucson.org is a new nonprofit organization formed by myself and two other sculptors, Jeff Timon and Steve Kimball. And our goal is to promote uh, awareness and appreciation and assist sculptors in selling their work. So it's basically an organization to promote awareness of three-dimensional art. We'd like to start with Tucson and grow to the county and beyond. 
maybe Mexico, you know. We are planning a few sales. Um, we've been working with the county government and with the city government to place large pieces of sculpture temporarily in the built environment that will then be for sale. Tucson has been a really good place for me as an artist to work. I travel a lot because I work all over the country and out of the country, but in terms of coming back to a place that is unique and special and has really been important to me in my work, I think Tucson is is fantastic, and um, I hope other artists feel the same way. Barbara Gragudis will sign copies of Public Art, Public Space this Sunday, January 22nd, at Hacienda del Sol Guest Ranch Resort from 3 to 5 p.m. Proceeds will benefit the nonprofit SculptureTucson.org. Arizona became a state in 1912. It was just seven years later that the Hotel Congress and its taproom bar opened for business. The hotel has survived a massive fire, the capture of John Dillinger, the Great Depression, and everything that's happened since. It's a kind of consistency that seems hard to find these days. Or is it? Not in Tiger's Tap Room. We'll meet Tiger next and hear from the hotel's owner, Richard Oseran. Most people don't even know my name is Tom Ziegler. They call me Tiger. What's my name? Hey, Tiger. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Okie dokie. We've been true and authentic to what we are forever, and that's why we remain relevant. But as, as I sit here and look across the street and look at the Rialto, which is a, you know, a wonderful venue and a great asset for the community, I think about the fact that it was boarded up. Congress Street was largely boarded up. We've been here now operating the hotel for 32 years. And Tiger was here. Tiger is the constant. I can't imagine him not being here. There you go. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You want orange this morning? No, thank you. It's good for you, vitamin C. That's quite all right. How about licorice, no? I've never known him as anything but the most polite, sweet, and sincere man. There you are, young man. Thank you, sir. I'm not Frank Sinatra. I do it the customer's way. They're number one, my boss told me. You better be nice to your customers. My favorite's my Bloody Mary. I like my Bloody Mary. We make everything from scratch. We don't have any pre-mix. We had Coors and, and Bud, I believe, on tap. 15 cents a mug and a quarter for a pint of beer then. Well, I'm pouring the beer and I have a screen. I turn around and I see it. This guy that just came in had his hands on this lady's breast. I dropped my beer and I come over and I said, Mister, there's two doors. There's one there and there's one there. And I suggest you get out, and I mean now. Well, he could have pumped me with one hand, but I had all, my friends were all, it was crowded. He meekly walks out the door. My boss says, go get him, Tiger. And moral of the story is, any single lady or any lady coming in this bar is not gonna be bothered. That's the story. I graduated in 51 in Iowa. This uh, man owned this Adams Company, it was a big company, and he didn't want a female for a secretary. The wife said that she, he was flirting with them. So they hired me, and I worked one year, and they treated me darn good. And so uh, after the year, I got a week's vacation. So my aunt and uncle had moved out to Tucson. I, she said, come out for a week. 
I came up for a week in 1952, and I'm still here. But you took the train, right? I did take the train, so yeah. Right and there? I got off here, and the first place that my aunt and uncle, they picked me up. And come in here, I got a Coke, and you got a beer. That's the first place you went to Tucson was right here, right off the train. Well, it's very convenient, you know. They were. Well, yeah. <laughs> but this all the same as when I first come here, and all the pictures and all is the same, you know. I'd never been to Tucson. I moved here. One of the first places I came, just like Tiger, was right here into the tap room. And I walked in, and he was bartending. He looked like he does now. Tiger is unchanged and, and almost ageless. I like a bourbon. I like a scotch. I like a double. I like them so much. When I pull up and I see him out here having a cigarette, I get the biggest smile every day because I'm like, I work with this guy. He's so iconic. He knows everything. He's seen it all. Yes, I've heard a lot of stories, and good and the bad and the ugly. And they got to tell somebody sometimes. I, I, I can't tell you how many stories. They're private. They trust the bartender. I'm coming. I just need to keep my whistle wet. The regulars are lifetime regulars. People come in day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And they pass through and, and some pass on. But uh, once again, Tiger's the constant. And, and that's why uh, the, the uh, taproom really uh, had a name change on his 80th birthday and it became uh, Tiger's Tap Room. His 80th birthday was beautiful. This place was packed. All these people, who spanned decades of partying at Congress were all here for him. He was overwhelmed a little bit. Everyone hugging him. It cracked me up that he got so many cases of Milwaukee's Best for his birthday. It was bizarre. I have two Milwaukee's Best ice when I get home at night, and that's all I drink. I don't, when I leave the bar, I could drink all night. People offer me beer. No, thank you. I go, I go home. It's a 10 minute drive to my apartment, and I get my PJ's on and have my food and dinner and watch TV and have my two Milwaukee best and that's it. Just don't take a sip of it, that's mine. Can I pour it on your head? <laughs> I've kind of matured in my gambling. Those darn uh, lottery tickets. Ugh. In fact, I bought two this morning. So we'll see what happens tonight. <laughs> I love my place. I'm happy right where I'm at. I don't want to sit at home in a rocking chair. It's great getting old. I love it. I don't like the gray hair, but then that's okay too, all right? That's nothing I can do anything about. We also heard from Tiger's co-worker, Tucson John. Our visit to Tiger's Tap Room was produced by Andrew Brown. The video version of the story debuts on the next edition of Arizona Illustrated, Sunday at 6.30 on PBS 6. Or you can watch it any time on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. <laughs>